Well, hello. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for giving a listen this week. And we are still in a celebratory mood around the office, around the studio. You know, last week when we released that episode, we crossed the 1 million download mark in our first 10 months of doing this show. 10 months, 1 million downloads. I cannot thank you enough for listening. It means the world to me. And so, as we continue to spread this knowledge and this information, the science, the link between diet and health, we're going to continue that conversation today with some really helpful, easy, and interesting tips. You know, a lot of people, they adopt a vegan diet, the plant-based diet, and then they decide, hey, let's try to take it a step further. I'm interested in taking oil out of my diet because we've learned that oil is really high in fat and fat has been tied to all sorts of illnesses, chronic disease. I don't want that. I don't want diabetes. I don't want cancer. I want to do everything that I can to keep myself healthy and I want to look at taking oil out of my kitchen. But how do I do that? How do I cook without oil? My goodness gracious sakes alive. Such a daunting task. You talk about sautéing, you sauté with oil. You talk about baking, every recipe that you bake with, virtually all of them have some sort of oil. And if you're ever roasting anything in the oven, including vegetables, odds are you're going to at least sprinkle a little bit of oil in there. But how do you do all of that, keep that wonderful flavor without any of the oil? This show is the one that you're going to learn from. We are welcoming onto the program an amazing plant-based chef, Drina Burton. She has been vegan for 20 years, and she's collaborated with Dr. Neil Barnard, co-authoring his cookbook for reversing diabetes. This woman is a master. So today, she is going to give us tips on how to saute, bake, roast, and avoid burning the food without the oil. Plus, if you like the popcorn, she's going to teach us how to make gourmet oil-free popcorn, give us a few other oil-free snack ideas, and some tips for parents who want to eliminate oil from their children's diets as well. And with this being October, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I wanted to revisit an interview that I did with dietitian Lee Crosby from the Barnard Medical Center. This originally aired in January, and this is a conversation in which she shares her own deeply personal scare with breast cancer. When she first found the lump in her breast, she poured herself into research. She wanted to do everything possible to survive, and that's when she discovered the link between diet and cancer. And so she adopted a plant-based diet and everything was going so well. And then she fell off the wagon. And what happened next, she said, was terrifying. So I'll be sharing that in just a little bit. But first, the interview with Drina Burton. You're about to learn how to cook without oil. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Today, we are learning how to cook without oil, oil-free cooking. You know, when people go and they adopt a plant-based diet, one of the things that they learn is that, well, it's great to eliminate meat and dairy, but you can actually really kick everything into high gear by eliminating some other things, and among them is oil. And so there is no better person on the face of this earth to talk about cooking without oil than Drina Burton. Drina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Chuck. Happy to be here. You have collaborated with Dr. Barnard in the past. Uh, you were you played an intricate role in uh, his cookbook for reversing diabetes. Some wonderfully tasty recipes uh, in there, and now you also have this book coming up uh, very shortly, uh, an ebook about oil-free snacks, plant-powered snacks, oil-free snacks. So, like I said at the top, you, you are you are the expert. You are the go-to on all things oil-free. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I And I've really been cooking oil-free only for about five or six years. So I know it's a transition for a lot of people, but it's, it's really very possible. Talk to me about when you learned about the health benefits of eliminating oil from the diet and 
maybe some of the challenges that you faced in the kitchen because every single food it seems like that we've eaten has some form of oil in it. You know, I, I make the joke: everything short of pour, you know pouring oil on your cereal in the morning, everything else in your pantry has oil in it. So, how in the world did did you make that leap? Yeah, that's that's true. You really have to be a bit of a label detective um, when you're shopping. And I think when you're sticking to a lot of whole foods, it just makes the process much easier um, as a cook and, and feeding your family yourself. I, I learned just sort of through um, the plant-based doctors, like Dr. Bernard and some of the other doctors, uh, just learning through... Uh, all of the, the information online now through Facebook and uh, elsewhere, Nutrition Facts, Dr. Esselstyn. Um, there's so many now uh, sharing the information about it. And my cooking had always been on the healthier side of the, the spectrum, I think, in terms of being very whole food based, using whole grains, uh, lower in sweeteners. And when I did use oil, it was a minimal amount of oil, but still it was very easy to cook with a minimal amount of oil and um, get the results that I wanted. So making that step further did kind of push my cooking boundaries and baking boundaries a little bit, but it was fun actually to experiment and kind of figure out, okay, how can I achieve the same textures and flavors, um, and particularly textures with baking and and the same uh, flavor factor, because we do know that fat carries flavor in food. I mean, it's it's very true that that is something that happens but there's ways to enhance flavors without so much fat and also using whole foods fats to enhance flavors so um yeah i just started experimenting and i actually found it very fun and and came up with some really creative recipes and ideas along the way so uh it's 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 daunting at first but it's doable yeah, let's let's talk about that because really, when it sounds obviously when you you decided to eliminate oil from your recipes, but also I think when a person first goes plant based, you kind of you have to turn into this mad scientist in the kitchen a little bit and learn how to replicate these flavors because the fact of the matter is just because you're eliminating meat and dairy from your diet doesn't mean that you have to eliminate the foods that you've been eating your entire life and that you absolutely love. Those recipes are still available. You just have to modify that. But you have to put on that creative thinking cap in order to replicate those those flavors. And you were just talking about trial and error. Talk to me a little bit about that process. I mean, how daunting of a process was that for you? Uh, well, my family didn't complain. They got to eat all the test runs along <laughs> the way. <laughs> they're, uh, they're usually happy when I'm um, mucking about in the kitchen. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it involved, um, like for baking, it involved replacing the oil with um, whole foods fats, like maybe some avocado in recipes. Although I do find the flavor of avocado can sometimes throw off a baked good, so I don't always use it. Something like nuts and seeds or nut and seed butters, they can work well. Also, um, using small amounts of pureed coconut works well or coconut milk. Um, and other things it comes from uh, that works really well, I find, is using fu- uh, fruit and vegetable purees. So I use cooked sweet potato in a lot of baking, and that works fantastically. Uh, I have a chocolate sweet potato cake that both the cake and the icing and the frosting have sweet potato in it, and it's probably my most popular recipe on my website. People love it, and they keep returning to it because it's easy. It's tasty. People love it, but they don't even know really what's in it or how healthy it is. It's just a delicious cake. Um, and then for cooking, it involved bringing in new ways to marinate um, ingredients and vegetables and beans and, and bringing in more herbs and uh, acidic varieties of things like lemons and and vinegars so there's components that you can bring in to enrich the flavors and help the flavors um, absorb into foods so that you're not having to carry all the flavor with the oil. Well, you you mentioned okay. avocado there, and that that can be a challenge. It definitely has a, a unique flavor to it. Well, give me an example of a recipe where you would use avocado, short of creating like a guacamole muffin. <laughs> yeah, I, will, I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I find when it's uh, accented with some citrus, it works well. So, for instance, I have an avocado, chocolate avocado pudding, 
And so when the avocado is in the pudding with the chocolate, but on its own, I don't love it with a little bit of orange juice and orange zest. It not quite camouflages the flavor, but a little bit enough. It just accents it differently so that you're really noticing the chocolate and orange notes more than the avocado notes. I find when you bake avocado, it turns, the flavor is a little different. So I've experimented with it, but I don't love it in, in cooked goods. I like it more in, say, raw things like um, puddings or um, a puree or something like that. So uh, rely on other flavors, fruit flavors, like berries, things like that, um, orange, even maybe lime. So even if you think of chocolate bar flavors or things like that that you may see where they're combining flavors, uh, cinnamon, things like that, that will bring in other notes to help hide that avocado flavor that can come through. I want to ask you about another popular cooking technique, and that's sautéing, because that's one of those things that even if you only have a couple of minutes after work to, to put something together for dinner, it's so easy to put a few things in a pan, sprinkle a little oil in there, mix it all around, heat it up, and then voila, you've got dinner. But sautéing becomes a little bit different when you don't have oil. I've sautéed with water, and, you know, it's backfired on occasions because obviously water evaporates over time, whereas oil doesn't. So there was kind of a trial and error there as well. So I'm curious if you could kind of talk to me a little bit about how you can perfect the sautéing technique when you're not adding oil to the pan. Sure, sure. Well, the first thing I'd, I'd recommend is to use a very good pan because if you're using a good quality nonstick and look for ones that are uh, you'll see the, the information on the label, but they will explain how they're non-toxic. Uh, then you have a coating that's safer to work with. And a non good non-stick pan, um, I have a scan pan, that uh, will really make a difference in your cooking process. When you use something that isn't non-stick, it really does make it more like arduous <laughs> to work <laughs> through in any kind of sauteing or even something like cooking pancakes because you can cook pancakes um, a lot of people think you need a lot of oil on a pan for pancakes, and you don't. You just need a good nonstick pan. Um, so working with vegetables and doing sautés, you, you have to look at, are you trying to, like, steam the vegetables a little bit, just get a little bit of cooking and warm them through, get some color enhancements, say, like with broccoli. You want to not steam exactly, but sauté enough to bring out the vibrancy, or if you're trying to brown them. And so if you're sautéing vegetables and you want to cook them through a longer time, you go on about a medium-high heat, you add a little bit of water or broth, or even a little, if you want to use some wine for sauteing, you could do that because alcohol will burn off as you're cooking. But you want to use that liquid in a small amount to begin, and then as you're working through the process, if it dries out, then you add a little bit more. But you don't dump in a lot of water because you're just then steaming or really almost boiling the vegetables almost like you're doing a soup base so too much water will just make them waterlogged and you want to use just enough to release it's called um in cooking terms you're almost deglazing the pan you want to get the the, the sticky the substance off the base of the pan again so use a small amount of water as you're going and the types of vegetables make a difference too because if you're using something something like a mushroom it will release water naturally you don't even need to start with water with mushrooms just get them in a hot pan add some salt salt also helps release the moisture from vegetables so it will naturally release water and whenever you cook mushrooms i never ever add water to mushrooms sometimes when i saute mushrooms i'll start with a little balsamic vinegar a little tamari and just get that coating on the mushrooms because it will brown and taste delicious and all the flavor goes into the mushrooms and you can add other vegetables along the way uh, because the mushrooms are still releasing water so those couple of techniques will definitely help Mm. See, the medium heat thing, that's that's something I wish that I had thought of because I'm the kind of guy that will just throw a pan on, on the stove and just put it on high and let's just rock and roll. Let's, let's get this thing done as quickly as possible. And, you know, nine times out of ten, it will end in glorious disaster. Um, so I, I will use this medium heat technique, and I will definitely report back to you. Um, yeah, and I Oh, sorry, just mentioned too, it also really depends on the heat source that you have because for me, a medium-high heat, I have a gas stove. I can adjust that heat really quickly, so I can go high and reduce it and, mm. and adjust that heat very quickly. But if you're using an electric um, stovetop burner, 
it, the heat takes a long time to reduce. So stick more to medium because then you're not going to, you know, over, over cook or scorch. So just to add that. Yeah, I've heard professional chefs say that they really much prefer the gas stovetop as opposed to the electric. I guess it's for that reason. Yeah, it's really easy to control the heat. I Once I moved to a gas stovetop, I, I don't think I could go back. I just love it so much. <laughs> Um, I want to ask you about pastas because um, I'm, I'm not talking about spaghetti and, and marinara and things like that. I'm talking about pasta that has been tossed with uh, oils, um, you know, whether it be a, a pasta salad or one of the things that I really enjoy um, that's, that's served at our Whole Foods down here locally is, is orzo that uh, has spinach and pine nuts added to it. But they also put in a lot of olive oil on top of that. So when you have a recipe like that, what would you suggest as far as replacing the oil? Yeah, that's a great question. And pasta is is interesting because how you work with it uh, for a pasta salad is a little bit different than serving it hot. So if you're serving it hot, and the types, there's so many pastas out there now. I mean, there's anything from whole wheat to brown rice to kamut to quinoa. So the texture of pasta really depends on what grains are being used in it. And now there's even legume-based pasta. So there's a lot of variation in the texture. But in general, when you're cooking pasta and serving it hot, as you're cooking it and the starch is released into the water, reserve a little water, like maybe just half a cup. And after you drain the pasta and you're working in your sauce, if it's something like a marinara sauce, tomato base, you can then add some of that cooking water back. It will help moisten it again and also helps the sauce to almost cling on to the pasta noodles. It just helps it adhere and it just brings it all together much more like lusciously <laughs> as, a, as a pasta sauce. If you have a really creamy based sauce, like a cashew based sauce, you really don't need to do that because the um, the fat and all the, the texture in those creamy sauces will do that on its own. When you're doing a pasta salad, however, uh, I do rinse the noodles before they cool because they're so starchy, they will stick together as they cool and you'll just like have a big clump of cold pasta and then you almost have to rehydrate it to, to release all the noodles. So give it a rinse so that they, the noodles will separate and then once it cools, make your, your sauce, your marinade and that there's so many possibilities with that because basically you're making um, oil-free dressings or some kind of um, sauce that you can incorporate all kinds of vegetables and different beautiful flavorings and then that becomes your sauce for the pasta no need for any oil when you talk about rinsing are you talking about rinsing with cold water or should we be using warm water for that I would rinse with cold because they will also help stop the cooking. So for a pasta salad, um, because pasta, once you remove it and it's still hot, it's actually still cooking. Same with vegetables. After you remove them from the heat, and you may notice when you cook something like broccoli, and it's this beautiful, vibrant green on top of the stovetop, and then by the time you get everyone to the table, 15, 10 minutes later, it's like it's gray. <laughs> and that's because the cooking is continually working. Uh, the heat is still in the pan even if the heat is off and it continues to cook. So the same thing will happen with pasta and it actually can become mushy. So I would rinse it with cold water if you know you're using it for a pasta salad and then let it drain fully and, and cool and enough to have enough of the water off of it that you can then incorporate the sauce. Chef du jour, Drina Burton, is the guest here on the exam room by the Physicians Committee. Check her out, DrinaBurton.com. Tons of fun recipes on there. Now, Drina, it is coming up on cool weather season, and I get absolutely giddy whenever the temperature changes because that means it's time for those winter vegetables, those winter squashes that I love so much, butternut squash, uh, even pumpkin, you know, any, any kind of gourd like that. Like, I just love to chop it up and roast it in the oven. But if you, if you go on Google and you look up recipes for that, again, you're going to find nearly all of them call for tossing the vegetables in olive oil before you put them in the oven. What would you suggest as far as roasting techniques to eliminate the oil? Oh, great question. And I'm with you. I love the winter squash. I did it for a long time. It almost took me some a few years to kind of adjust, my palate adjusted or whatever. But <laughs> all of those deep orange squash, they're so delicious. And if you don't really love squash, then go for sweet potatoes, orange sweet potatoes, yellow sweet potatoes. 
um, because they're a little obviously sweeter and the texture is a little different and it, and it may help you get used to some of the winter squash in, right. in that regard. So cooking squash, I have a video on my website too about how to do this with winter squash because they're pretty beastly, right? You buy these things, you go look at them and they're they're gorgeous at the market, but then you bring it home and you're not quite sure how to get into it to begin with. <laughs> it's really easy to cut your hand or something when you're you know trying to work into a squash. So two things you can do is roast them whole. I do it all the time. Just line a baking sheet with parchment paper, put the whole squash in there, put it in at about 400, 425. And you don't need to pierce it. Just put the thing in, let it do its thing for about an hour. It really depends on the size. If it's smaller, it can take only maybe 40 minutes and let it cool. And once it's cool, you can just slice it and scrape out the seed. You can use the squash directly and soups or salads or purees or just eat it straight up with some seasonings. Um, so that's one option if you want to roast it in cubes, which will give you a different texture. It will make it a little firmer. Um, first, peel your squash with a vegetable peeler. If, if it's uh, Most of us use butternut squash or, or um, varieties that don't have too nubbly uh, rinds. You can use a vegetable peeler like you would for carrots and mm -hmm. just go down along the surface of the squash, and I have that in my video. And then work with um, a flat edge on the squash to cut it. Get your cubes. And then, again, parchment paper is your best friend. Sprinkle some salt on the parchment paper, some coarse salt. It kind of helps um, elevate just slightly the squash and gives a little bit of convection to the cooking or any roasted vegetable for that matter. And start roasting it at a little lower heat than you would with oil. So I go with like 400 because with oil, you can go a little higher in temperature. And as it's cooking and you start to see it starting to brown, then if you have a marinade, then start to work that into the squash uh, or other vegetables. So you might have a marinade with some uh, fresh herbs like rosemary, maybe a little bit of uh, balsamic vinegar, some maple syrup, and you want to work that through. So do that in maybe the second half of cooking, and it, it will be beautiful. The, the flavors will all come together. The marinade will dry out over time through the cooking, and you'll have a delicious um, side dish or, you know, depends on how much you want to eat. Maybe it's a main. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you real quick about Brussels sprouts in particular. That is uh, definitely one of the favorites at my house. My wife and I absolutely love it. Um, one of the things that I do uh, before I put them in the oven is I'll, I'll – flash boil them basically to you know just kind of moisten them up before I, I put them in there but still again you look at those recipes online and they're toss them in olive oil as well if i eliminate the olive oil from that portion and i just sprinkle on the salt a little bit of pepper just keep it keep it clean keep it very simple will the flavor still turn out the same or because there's no oil there will it be slightly different or maybe even increase the risk of, of burning yeah, I, I say the flavor will be a little different, especially for things, cruciferous vegetables, anything in that family. The flavor can be a little different. And I think what works really well for things like that, uh, squash, or sorry, not squash, um, the Brussels sprouts or something like uh, cauliflower or broccoli, cabbage family, is to either blanch it or give it a quick... Um, saute and then maybe bring it back to a marinade mm -hmm. uh, because that will give it a different flavor and it can burn in the oven. I mean, if you keep it at a lower heat, it, it won't, but cruciferous can take on a bit of a bitter flavor when it burns. So I think if you're not quite sure and you don't want to ruin it, I bring it back to a marinade because if you do something like a Dijon marinade with lemon and maybe some thyme or um, I don't know if you like tarragon, depends on the, you know, flavorings you like, black pepper, and, and you get a really delicious marinade or dressing, work that into the Brussels sprouts, I think you'll get a much more enjoyable dish than if they possibly burn. Because even if they burn a little bit, it really does change the flavor. Yeah, my wife likes it. Um, and just put a, a little bit of a maple glaze over top of them from time to time. She's got the that's sweet right. tooth, don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. I think that's great. Yeah. I want to talk to you about uh, this uh, oil-free snack ebook that you have coming out because we've talked about the entrees, we've talked about the sides, but what we haven't talked about yet are snacks. And I 
again, when somebody is first adopting that whole food plant-based diet or even somebody that's just looking to clean up their act, they're like, man, this bag of chips, these nuts, everything here has added oil to it again. So here you come along with this ebook that has a bounty of oil-free snack ideas. Talk to me about some of the things that, that are in there and maybe some tips that you could share um, to help people overcome the, the abundance of oil when you're eating between meals. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky. Almost everything you buy for snack food has oil and a lot of other added things, extra sugar and other things you don't really need or want in snacks. They can still taste good with less mm. or none. So, um, yeah, I had this idea because I had a lot of people asking, uh, you know, what do you do for popcorn, for instance? How do you make popcorn taste good? Uh, because when it's air popped and I put salt on it, it just doesn't, you know, the salt falls to the bottom. How do you keep the salt on or nutritional yeast? How do you make it taste good? And I thought, yeah, I got to figure this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I thought, okay, and after a few, I made a few recipes with different popcorn um, trials. I did a chocolate coated uh, sort of like a candy corn and then I did a caramel corn and I did a salt and vinegar one and sort of a cheesy one and I thought, okay, I, I need to put this into a collection and then that expanded into snacks fully. Um, I have chickpea fries, I have uh, oven roasted uh, crispy potatoes and granola because granola always has oil in it in the stores and some cookies and other, you know, bits and bites in there. Um, so yeah, I, I just created this collection for people to enjoy snacking with, uh, you know, healthier options for snacking. I love it, but it's really hard to find any suitable options unless you're, you know, pop, just air popping is really what most people do, but I take it to a new level. (laughs) You know, you're, you're telling me those recipes and I'm thinking about these popcorn tins that I would get growing up and they would have, you know, three or four different kinds of popcorn in there. Of course, your standard buttered popcorn, but then they had the caramel corn, the cheese corn. Um, and it was, it was like a box of chocolates only with popcorn and it was delicious. And I'm sure it wasn't the healthiest thing in the world that I could possibly be eating, but nonetheless, I like where your head's at. Was that the inspiration? Do you know Do you know these tins that I'm talking about? I do. They're usually like fundraisers, too, at schools in the, during the holidays, or you see them in stores. I totally know what you're talking about, and they're so much fun. I mean, it, it's nice to kind of revisit those memories that we have because food is so intertwined with our memories and, and good times and everything. So I totally rem- know what you're talking about. And, yeah, it's much like that. You can you could gift these ideas, like for the holidays, you could bag up the caramel corn or the chocolate corn or both. And, yeah, uh, that's kind of the idea. And, uh, you know, you said school fundraisers and, and you're a parent. And, you know, one of the things, again, it, it just seems like this day and age people have – so little time and it's what can I possibly give my kid to snack on that's a healthy option you know and and so here you come with some oil-free ideas do you find it um well how do you keep it healthy for for your kids because you do have a number of 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 children that are still in in school in your house don't you yeah um I have um three girls 17 almost 14 and nine and uh you know it's tricky with schools because it's, I call it the sugar train begins in October uh, and it goes to <laughs> goes to the spring from, you know, Halloween to uh, Christmas and then into um, Easter for most people. There's just sugar going through in Valentine's. I forgot Valentine's. There's always a reason for parties. Oh, yeah. Birthday party celebrations at school. And it's hard. There's a lot of things given out at school and things uh, – candy with all kinds of neon colors and, you know, more than just sugar and oil. It's tricky. So, uh, you know, I have noticed with my girls that they, I mean, they still love treats. They want treats. But I do notice that when they have something um, from, if they have had a lollipop or a popsicle or something that is one of those ones with the colors, they do feel it and they taste it. They say, oh, that tastes odd because they know it doesn't taste like real ingredients. And they tend to pass on it. And then I usually swap it out with something at home that we have and, and it's much healthier, much tastier anyways. Um, so I keep a lot of things at home. I do a lot of baking myself. Uh, but I do find that when your kids are eating good food regularly, their palates 
are appreciating good food. And so they may want treats, but they just, they do enjoy the healthier ones. They will enjoy them uh, when you make them. There's no doubt. What about when their friends come over to your house and you're serving them those types of foods? You know, you're talking about the difference in palates. How do, how do their friends take to these, these snacks? Yeah, I mean, uh, most of their friends love to come over to our house because they know there's always <laughs> a lot of food around. <laughs> I always have a lot of food, so they're quite happy. Um, but, you know, sometimes their friends will bring their own, like, snacks, and that's cool, like the older kids because they're teenagers now, and, you know, they want to bring in their chips or, you know, cheesy nachos or whatever, and our girls will eat their things. And, you know, we have some chips for special occasions and things like that, too, for them for birthday parties. But they're just, again, they're not the -the run-of-the-mill, like, things that are just full of chemicals and and whatnot. Uh, But that happens, and and I just, you know, I've just seen with our girls that it's been cool. They've grown with it. They haven't bucked it, and that was you know, my goal really was that they would accept it and enjoy it so that they weren't pushing away from it. And they haven't. They've never said, hey, can I try, you know, a burger at McDonald's or can I try these, yeah, you know, chicken nuggets? That's never happened. Yeah. So uh, I think as long as they're enjoying their food, as long as they're really enjoying their food, it's good. They're, they're going to be good. It's so important, uh, I think, to introduce healthy eating at a young age. That's something that I desperately wish that uh, that I had the opportunity to do uh, as a child. But nonetheless, uh, here I am many years yeah. later and uh, and happily have discovered it. And uh, I just think that that's great. And my hat is off to you, not only as, as this awesome chef, but, you know, a, a mother who is taking a stand and making sure that uh, her kids are being well taken care of in terms of what it is that they're putting into their body. I think that that is fantastic. So my hat is off to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so Drina Burton, DrinaBurton.com. Check her out. Also, Twitter and Instagram at Drina Burton. That's with two E's in case you were wondering. And the Plant Powered Snacks Oil Free Snacks ebook should be available very shortly. Drina Burton, thank you very much for your time. You have been a wealth of oil free information. Thank you very much. Rena Burton, she is self-taught in a lot of things in the kitchen. And so that just kind of goes to show that there is hope for all of us. Even those of us talented enough to burn water. Think about that one for a second. Quick favor to ask if you would be so kind. Go ahead and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is. If you have not already done so, if you could go ahead and click that subscribe button, we would greatly appreciate it. Also, leave a five-star rating and a nice comment. The more people that do that, if you do this, you will help us get this message out into as many ears as possible. We want as many people to know about this science, about this research that shows the link between health and diet and how you can improve your health with some easy steps. What Drina was talking about to eliminate oil in the kitchen, not that difficult. Just takes a little bit of trial and error. Before we go any further, speaking of knowledge, I wanted to share the findings of some new research that was published in the International Journal of Cancer. Now, this was published just last month. It's a meta-analysis examining the effect of red and processed meats on the risk of breast cancer. There are about 18 studies that were included in this particular analysis. And what researchers found was that your risk of being diagnosed jumps by anywhere from 6 to nearly 10%. And they chalked up that increased risk to the high amounts of saturated fat and cholesterol and heme iron that are found in these foods. So if you want to learn more, we put up a link to that study on pcrm.org slash podcast. Just go ahead and click on this particular episode page, Cooking Without Oil. Now then, as promised, I wanted to revisit my conversation with dietitian Lee Crosby where she shares her own personal scare with breast cancer. This ordeal helped steer her life into the direction where she is now. She's working as a dietitian and counseling patients on the preventative medicine technique that we know as diet. 
What you eat has a direct impact on your health. Each meal can literally be a life and death decision. And so with that in mind, Lee also shares her top five tasty meat alternatives. So good they are. So good they are that even the most hardened of grill masters will stand up and say, hey, I don't miss my steak. That's saying something. Here now, my conversation with Lee. Lee, the reason that I wanted to bring you back onto the show for this is because this is one that is very near and dear to your heart. It is, yeah. So you want me to go ahead and... By all means. Yeah, so I, I do have some... I have a story here that goes with this. So in terms of what happened to me, back in 2010, it was late 2010, um, I was actually having some pretty severe breast pain in my right breast. So I think like any woman would, I got pretty worried, uh, went to my doctor, and she suggested, you know, she did a manual exam, didn't find anything shady, but decided to go ahead and send me for a mammogram just out of an abundance of caution. I should put a caveat here that I was the ripe old age of 30 when this was happening. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty concerned. Um, So the results came back, and what they found were some sort of suspicious spots. They were calcifications, and we decided to go ahead and biopsy them. And those, by the way, were actually in the left breast. So surprise! Yeah, not what I was expecting. Right. Um, So they ended up being something called benign hyperplasia, which basically means... Not cancer, but your cells are growing more than they should. And it does mean you have an increased risk down the road. Still alarming. Yeah, yeah. So I went ahead and got a a breast surgeon because my family doctor was more than happy to pass the baton on that one and got a full workup. And she actually found a thickened spot in the right breast that nothing had shown up on the mammogram, but it was about the size of a quarter. And so since I had just had a biopsy and I was not looking to get you know, another hole, no more, no more cutting. Just, I was over it. She offered the alternative of watching and waiting and checking every three months to see if anything had changed. So I thought, okay, I can do that, but I'm not just going to watch and wait because that's not who I am. I want to do anything I can because again, I was only 30, anything I could do to reduce my risk. So I did some reading. Um, I actually read the China study by Dr. Campbell, um, a couple of other books, things that I had kind of actually thought, particularly in terms of the China study, I had thought that was just, I don't know, maybe hot air. I'd never read it. When I actually sat down and read it and saw that it was based on, you know, peer-reviewed, published research, I actually went to the National Institutes of Health, the National Library of Medicine, so I could pull the full studies and read the papers to see for myself that this was true, that there was a connection between animal protein and cancer, and lo and behold, there is. Yeah. So I went and transitioned onto a plant-based diet, and first three months went back for my checkup. Everything was the same. That spot was totally stable. Second three months, everything was the same. Third three months, everything was the same. <clears throat> and about that point in time, I had actually... It's a long story. I sort of fell off the wagon. Um, I I had taken Cipro a few months prior, which I probably actually shouldn't have even taken, but it had um, made my gut function a little bit special. And so (laughs) it was sort of a misguided attempt to try and fix that. I reintroduced meat. I went on a really intense sort of elimination diet. But again, the mistake there was reintroducing meat while I did that. Right didn't know it was a mistake at the time. Um, So I went for my final check with her thinking, you know, this is going to be nothing. It's been stable for, you know, nine months straight. I should be, you know, I should be graduated. Like I'm done. But I hadn't anticipated that the diet change would make a difference. So I was actually four months, not three months, because I was running a little behind. And when I went back in for that final check, thinking I was just going to get a clean bill of health, that spot, <clears throat> which had been totally stable on a plant-based diet, I mean, totally stable, had doubled in size. Mm. So again, in just four months, doubled in size, terrifying. So I was back on the surgical table, you know, within a week, I think, super frightened, um, had a lumpectomy, had a big old chunk of my, my flesh cut out. It was not, not a pleasant experience. Um, and it was sent to the pathologist, and the results came back atypical. Now, I was really happy that it wasn't cancer, but I don't know if you know that much about atypia. Have you heard the term? Uh, I, I know that uh, somebody close to me had um, 
a little scarce, so I know a little bit. I'm I'm certainly not an expert, but I know it's uh, it's enough to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Long nights. Yeah, exactly. It's not something you want to hear in reference to your own cells. So luckily with the lumpectomy, they'd gotten everything. It had clean margins. But the fact that I was sprouting atypical cells, again, I think I was 31 at this point. And the fact that just going from a plant-based diet back to sort of a meaty diet, and I hadn't been exercising as much, but the biggest change was bringing animal protein back in and animal fat. And to have it double in size and come back atypical, I was done. Because, again, atypical is basically one step right before cancer. Mm. And the kind of atypia I had was one step right before they start treating you with tamoxifen and estrogen blockers. So I decided I was going to go right back to the plant-based diet. And I did um, lower fat content. And I have been there happily ever since. And that was about five years ago. And so far, so good. Knock on wood. I've had clean reports every year when I go back. Uh so speaking of going back, let's let's dial this back. It sounds to me like you did a lot of this research on your own. How much did your doctor try to school you on nutrition? Not at all. Not surprised, unfortunately. Not at all. Yeah. And it's not that she isn't interested. That's just, you know, she's a surgeon. That's what she does. And she's and she certainly did say things like avoid alcohol, which is, a, again, a well-known risk factor um, or minimize it and to stay active. But that was really that was really it. And, eat you know, a quote unquote healthy, balanced diet. Well, what does that mean? In this case, I actually was eating a pretty healthy, balanced diet. It just was fairly heavy on animal protein and animal fat. Mm-hmm. But I was still eating fruits and vegetables. I was doing that stuff. So for me, the real key here was was meat. So you've obviously, you know, turned that corner. Have you had an opportunity to speak with the surgeon and kind of talk about going plant-based and the benefits that you found in that now? Yeah. So I check in with her every year and she knows that I'm plant-based and she's delighted with the outcomes and she, I'm sure, would be more than happy to have, you know, more of that information in her practice. Yeah. She's been very receptive. So early 30s, 30, 31. Was there a wow. history of breast nope. cancer in your family? No history of breast so cancer. So this in my just family. really out of left field just blindsided you. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I, I figured I had, I learned as through the course of my research that I had some risk factors I didn't know that I had, one of which we'll talk about more, but was eating a lot of red meat during my preteen and teenage years. Mm. Um, it, there, you know, there are reasons, but it was, it was, yeah, no family history. So you come through the other side and I mean, you're sitting here, you're a dietitian now, so you, you must have had this epiphany, like, this is what I need to be doing with my life. I did, and I turned to nutrition first because I had a background in nutrition, but I certainly hadn't, you know, done the whole dietitian thing, and having had this experience was what made me go back to school, take those courses, go through the internship, and become a dietitian, knowing that this kind of nutrition was this powerful. This isn't something you get in a standard nutrition curriculum, so I'm really glad that I encountered it for myself. I could have done without the actual situation, but I'm really glad I found this information. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. You know, I, I'm in school myself now mm-hmm. trying to trying to get that oh, bless your heart. fancy acronyms <laughs> after my name. Um, <clears throat> Letters. And one of the courses that I took this past semester was uh, nutrition for athletes, essentially. Wow, and nice. they were just super big on meat and Ugh. dairy and I'm like reading this and I'm like why is this part of the curriculum like, I, don't I, I don't understand why this is possibly part of the curriculum they they view it the professor does nutrition in a box they right. just regurgitate what they have been told <clears throat> and yeah. so I wish I had the textbook with me like you and I could go through it and be like nope Nope, oh, nope, and just I cross it all out. I did lots of that in my standard nutrition textbooks. And luckily, I had some friends who were vegan and vegetarian, and they would listen to my little rants and things. I would literally text pictures out of the textbook where I had done strike throughs and been like, ah, oh, inaccurate exclamation point. Right. So, yeah, it's pretty frustrating. It is. And and I don't know if this was a similar experience for you, like that little chapter on veget- uh, vegetarians <gasps> and vegans. I mean, it was so short Teeny, compared tiny. to everything. I remember in one particular <laughs> chapter, we got a pair paragraph a paragraph you know just i have literally had the a paragraph experience yeah and and you're just like and the heart disease chapter oh really oh yeah they talk about all these things and interventions that can lower cholesterol by five whole points and i'm sitting here like clinically it's better than nothing but it's not really clinically going to make a difference to lower your cholesterol by five points and then there was one paragraph that said a low-fat vegetarian or vegan diet may 
be helpful in reversing heart disease. I'm like, why is that one paragraph when we're spending pages on reducing cholesterol by five points? Talk about burying the lead. <laughs> and just Big time. dive into my news Big vernacular time. there. It's just, it's unreal to me. So it really is. You have this experience, you have this awakening, you go and uh, you get this nutrition degree. And, and so this is just kind of your course in life now, huh? It is. And, you know, I've also, I sort of researched the heck out of things when I'm, if I'm nervous about something like, you know, having an increased risk of breast cancer, my answer, my way to deal with it is to be proactive and learn as much as I can. And so I've definitely done that on this topic and some of these sort of nutrition-related topics. Also, I just nerd out about nutrition. That's a nerd out, man. That's what this podcast <laughs> is all about. <laughs> Truth. Your, your, uh, your patients, do some of them come in? Maybe they've had some similar scares and, and you've had the opportunity to talk to them a little bit? Not as much, although I do mention it for women. Again, because I think people just don't think about nutrition in terms of, in terms of breast health. Mm-hmm. But even in terms of breast pain, keeping the, the animal products out of the diet and keeping the fat low, it really helps with breast pain. I know that, for instance, participants in our studies will, you know, sometimes they'll say like, oh, yeah, this is this is much better. Nice little side effect. It's not what we were going for. But, you know, it's, it's not just future risk. It's also feeling better right now. Some people who may be transitioning over to a plant-based diet, you know this. We've talked about this. People go on a diet. They're all concerned about what they can't eat anymore. Right. And so if you're, you know, a hardcore carnivore. Oh, boy. You know, you're going to be <laughs> We've like. We've all been there. You know, when, when am I going to be able to have that steak? When am I going to be able to have oh, that boy. chicken? I can't live without that. Right. But the fact of the matter right. is you don't need it. And there are some really cool alternatives there that are 100% are. vegan. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I come from a family where. Meat intake was this thing you did. And I mean, my grandpa raised beef cattle. And so you ate beef. That's what you did. But in terms of substitutes, there are some really great and I won't even say substitutes. These are just their own entrees. And I think most of the time they actually taste way better than meat ever tasted. Give me your top five. All right. So top five. Number one, beans and lentils. You can already guess I love them on the health side because they're high in fiber. They are very rich in protein and they are low in fat and cholesterol. Well, free from cholesterol, low in fat loaded with vitamins and minerals, but you can use them anywhere. So anywhere you'd use ground beef, you can sub in, you know, lentils are a nice easy one, um, but you can do things like chili, you can do taco filling, you can put it in your marinara sauce over pasta, you can do a no meat loaf, you can even make like a two, I joke, two no salad (laughs) (laughs) with chickpeas. But again, they're just really versatile. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, made the wife, uh, what is it, the pumpkin lentil chili? I think that was on the 21-day kickstart Yum. menu. Yeah, that was out of this that world. That sounds really good. Oh, she was on board. Oh. Of course, I added kale. You know. <laughs> yes! I know, right? <laughs> Sorry. Cruciferous vegetables? Yeah. Uh, tofu. Also tofu. made your list. Again, because it's really, it has particular benefits in terms of, you know, decreasing your risk of breast cancer. Um, again, note I don't say prevent because there's no no magic bullet, but definitely decreases risk. And again, it's really versatile. So you can it can be in the middle of a sandwich. You can, you know, brush some barbecue sauce on it, bake it up in the oven. You can scramble it like eggs. Like You can throw it in a stir fry. It works. You can put it in a smoothie. It works everywhere. Uh, 18 million kinds of mushrooms out there, but there's <laughs> one that stands above them all. Okay. In terms of meat substitutes, that's going to be portobello mushrooms because they are just exactly burger size. It's very convenient. And also mushrooms, most people think we have four different kinds of taste buds, sweet, sour, salty, bitter. We actually have five, and the fifth one's kind of recently discovered, and that is umami, which is also just fun to say. But it is a sort of meaty, savory flavor. You're giving me a look, but it's a real thing. And so, yes, animal proteins have it, but mushrooms also have it, as do tomatoes. Huh. So it's sort of a savory flavor. Umami. Right? Ooh. My blown? Huh? Umami. <laughs> uh, I have not seen that in the store yet. It will not be a separate flavoring. It is just part of the mushroom. Ooh. Although soy sauce actually has a little bit of that flavor, too, which is one of the reasons it tastes so darn good. Huh. Also the salt. So, you, you know, yeah. use in moderation. There, there is that. <laughs> uh, Satan, that's a biggie. All right, yeah. Um, they probably could use a slightly better name for it. If anyone wants to rename that, that'd be great. Um, it's actually the protein from wheat. I know, it's just a I think name. about that. Like, I think about Dana Carvey's church lady, you know, for <laughs> oh, Satan. I haven't seen it. I haven't Satan? seen it. <laughs> so, so I'm anyway. sure somebody listening knows what I'm talking about. Right, okay. I am not very hip to the whole <clears throat> anything, really. So, I will say that it is a great. It's sad but true. So it's a great chewy – it has a very 
almost disturbingly meat-like texture. So if you were to go somewhere like, I don't know, Whole Foods where you'd get like a vegan General Tso's chicken, Mm -hmm. they're usually making that out of seitan. So, and again, all that is is wheat gluten. So it's a great, you know, meaty substitute. But sidebar, it's also in all wheat products. So something like just bread or pasta that people think of as just carbs also have protein. Two slices of bread, just your standard loaf bread, eight grams of protein. That's more than an egg. So just want to make sure that's in people's heads. Yeah. You can also, uh, I've, I've purchased this for stir fries especially, you can just get a package of um, seitan, you know, really unseasoned. Just, yeah. You know, and make it your it own. Home. Absolutely. Yeah. Other, other people make it themselves at their house. I'm not that skilled. You can do it. I'm not that skilled I've done skilled it once. Yet. But yeah, it, it's a lot of, I would just buy it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> Pay for the convenience. Uh, shocker. The last one on your top five here. Veggie, veggie. Speaking of convenience. So if you're transitioning or even if you just want the occasional sort of meat texture flavor without all the health problems and other issues with meat, um, veggie crumbles or veggie burgers are so easy. They're typically in the freezer section, although you can also find some in the fridge section in the produce aisle because plants. Um, They give you that meaty flavor. They work really nicely in spaghetti sauce. Veggie burgers are something that's great. In terms of the crumbles, I really like uh, they have the Gardein Ultimate Beefless Ground and the Beyond Meat Crumbles. Both of those are really nice. If you didn't get a chance to jot down that list, don't worry. We've got it up for you on pcrm.org slash podcast. Just go ahead and click on this particular show's page. We'll be diving much deeper into the connection between diet and breast cancer later this month. Be on the lookout for a Facebook Live that I'm going to be doing with Dr. Neil Barnard. That's going to be on October 18th. Okay, just check out the Physicians Committee and Dr. Neil Barnard's page on Facebook for all the details. It's going to be October 18th in the afternoon. Go ahead, mark that down right now. Save the date. We would love for you to join us. And again, we ask that you help share this information with others. Pass the exam room by the Physicians Committee on to a friend or a family member. Heck, even share it on Facebook or Instagram wherever it is that you want to do it. And while you're on Instagram, by the way, plug, plug, go ahead and follow at Physicians Committee and myself at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's Carroll with two R's, two L's, and the WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. Again, many thanks to Drina Burton. Check her out at drinaburton.com. That's D-R-E-E-N-A Burton.com. Also on Twitter and Instagram at Drina Burton. And her new ebook, that will be out very, very soon. So for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.